Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 3, recorded January 18th, 2014. Tom Cruise fights to protect the blockchain. On today's show, we're talking about a whole host of new businesses accepting Bitcoin and wonder whether Bitcoin is about to break through to the mainstream. We're discussing the death of CoinyCoin and Mr. West's rather underdeveloped sense of humor. We're talking Silk Road and how the US government is about to become a major Bitcoin trader. We're also revisiting Bitcoin ATM and looking to Skyhook, a new cheap and open source Bitcoin ATM. Then there's the French Senate who held new hearings on Bitcoin, good signs from there. And finally, Ethereum, a new altcoin and protocol layer that aims to revolutionize the future of Bitcoin. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping address. Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin. We're super excited to be on our on our third podcast this week. My name is Brian Fabian Crane. I'm a Bitcoin entrepreneur in Berlin. I run the Bitcoin Startups Group here. And I've been spending a lot of time on this podcast. Very excited to be here. And I'm Sebastian Couture. I'm a Canadian developer and user experience designer. And I'm based in Lille, France. And I'm also very excited to be uh, on our third episode. Things are moving along quite nicely. Yeah, so how's your week been, Sebastian? I've been sick all week. Oh, no. (laughs) So excuse my... My raspy voice. Yeah, well, I hope I hope you're getting better and uh, you're overcoming the pains of winter. <laughs> How's your week been? Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, we've had the fourth meetup of the Bitcoin Startups Building Group here on Tuesday, and it's been it's been quite dramatic how the group has grown. You know, we started in I think last October with about. 35 people and we moved to a bigger space now and we've had 70 people come to the last meetup and it's it's yeah it's quite it's quite amazing it's uh, lots of fun to see how how fast it's growing that's good news what kind of uh what kind of people are you attracting like what kind of backgrounds or yeah that's one of the challenges running this group is because I think there's a really diverse group of people so you have people who have no clue about bitcoin they we do it at a at a co-working space called beta house which is uh very well known in Berlin I think it's like one of their first uh, co-working spaces and uh it's kind of a leader in the co-working space so uh, a lot of people just come from there because they um, they heard about it, the, the internal agenda. And then we kind of have our regulars who are more into Bitcoin, you know, a lot of Bitcoin developers. So there's really diverse background, which is also challenging because some people have no clue. And then other people do these technical talks about, you know, one guy about um, he's doing an SMS wallet and he was talking about how he does some of the back end. Uh, and so that, that's actually a challenge to have this this really wide difference in backgrounds yeah but i mean it's a challenge but i think it's also an opportunity right to uh you know absolutely different different types of people and get different perspectives yeah absolutely i mean i think it's great to coming and this is really a great chance for us to introduce them to bitcoin but i think what we 
what we need to do as a group is to be more friendly to beginners so they have some space there where they can learn about what is Bitcoin, how it works. And at the same time, we also need to provide a space for people to explore more advanced topics, people who really work with Bitcoin. So I think to do both, you know, to do both within one meetup group is, is kind of challenging. So I think we'll have to find a way to do that. Oh, great. I announced my uh, meetup yesterday. So it's going to be taking place on the 6th of, uh, of February at uh, La Machine, which is a bar here in Lille that accepts Bitcoin. They're kind of a geek bar. They they do uh, Mario Kart tournaments and things like that. So they attract kind of a technically knowledgeable or technically savvy um, clientele. For now, I I don't have any other speakers other than myself. So if you're in France or in Belgium and you're listening to this show and you're uh, a Bitcoin entrepreneur or an economist or just even uh, an enthusiast and you'd like to do a talk at the uh, Bitcoin Lille uh, meetup, even if it's even if it's in English, please get in touch with me and uh, I'll see what we can do about that. Cool. Well, I'll be. I'm sure you'll see a lot of growth, and uh, hopefully, I can make it to your meetup too at some point. Yeah, I'd love to make it to your meetup as well. <laughs> Should we get started? Absolutely. We got lots to cover today. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I'm going to start off just briefly talking kind of what's been going on with uh, merchant acceptance. Because, you know, last week we had uh, overstock.com. I think it was last week uh, that they started accepting Bitcoin and uh, they had their first day, I think, $124,000 worth of Bitcoin purchases, which was like 4% of their revenues, which is really a big success. And they were all over the news. They got a lot of kind of free publicity. And it seems, you know, from all the news we've seen that this has kind of led to an acceleration of Bitcoin adoption. We've now seen a whole bunch of really diverse businesses and companies this week uh, announcing that they're accepting Bitcoin. For example, there was this a criminal lawyer in Holland. There was a, a private chat company, so you can basically, you know, rent a lease a chat. Dutch helicopter company, uh, a big Canadian e-commerce company called Coastal Contacts. They sell like um, glasses and contact lenses and have, you know, 200 million dollars of yearly revenue so it's a big company there's a, a flight school in the uk it's interesting there's actually a lot it seems to be a lot of chat and flight and flying schools i don't know where that comes from but somehow it's bitcoin seems to be popular in that area probably because they're moving large large amounts of cash <laughs> yeah i i guess so i don't yeah i don't know and uh, maybe most interestingly, the Sacramento Kings, which is an NBA team. Now, that's interesting because they're going about it very differently. So they're, I think they're also using BitPay, which is, you know, a very popular Bitcoin payment processor. But unlike most companies, especially larger companies that start accepting Bitcoin, uh, they're actually going to keep the Bitcoins. So... I think they said that, you know, they expect the price of Bitcoin to increase. So they want to hold on to it because they think it makes sense in the long term. And that's, you know, that's pretty cool. 
So they're using Bitcoin payments as an investment strategy, I guess. I guess you could say it like that. I, I think also one important point here is that the team is owned by one guy. So he, of course, can make that kind of decision. If it was a public company, it would be, I think it would be much more difficult for the CEO to, to do something like that because then something goes wrong. Right. You know, you, everybody's going to yell at you. Uh, what's also cool is that they're going to accept Bitcoin for everything, which also includes purchases in the stadium. So, you know, hot dogs and jerseys and everything. So that that's pretty significant uh, decision because they're going to have to train their staff. They're going to have to set up some, uh, you know, point of sale system, maybe give their, their staff uh, uh, tablets. Android tablets and, you know, teach them about Bitcoin and they'll have to kind of also give it a, a prominent uh, a visibility in the stadium. So really cool. I'm, um, well, I mean, I look at all these stories and to me, it's, it's a good indication that Bitcoin is gaining visibility and gaining notoriety. And I think this will do so much to uh, help that notoriety grow. Like just the Sacramento Kings accepting it I mean, that's going to be, it's going to be seen by all these people that, that go to Sacramento Kings games and they're going to see Bitcoin uh, logos and they're going to be wondering what, what is this if they don't want to know it. So I think that, uh, and, and obviously overstock.com accepting it. I think this kind of follows, falls into what we were talking about last week, I think it was where over the next two or three months, we're going to see a lot of adoption. I think that maybe February or March, we're going to see adoption rise significantly like all these people that have been hearing about it uh over the last two three months in the news with all that's been happening with regulation i think we're getting ready for a big spike in use and 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 adoption in the next few months yeah i absolutely agree and it's still important to recognize that in terms of uh, merchant adoption like real businesses and even online businesses except in bitcoin this is still so much at the beginning. There's oh, really yeah. t- a tiny, tiny number. You know, the, the, I think there are a lot more if you, there are quite a few people interested in it. You know, a lot of developers interested in it and, uh, uh people buying Bitcoin, etc. But in terms of Bitcoin as a payment system, you know, you can like use credit card or use Bitcoin, etc. This is uh, so much at the beginning and it, it seems to be really accelerating now. So mm. that's, it, it would be, Really exciting to see if that continues. I think if somebody right now, if somebody wants to get into consulting companies on how to start accepting Bitcoin, would be a very good move for anybody to get into at this point. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, totally. I thought. I mean, I, um, I didn't. I didn't write these down, but I thought I saw also some other merchants accept Bitcoin this week. Or they're not? Uh, yeah, it's certainly possible. I mean, mm-hmm. I might have missed some. So, um, do you want to move on to maybe the next topic, or do you have anything else to say about this one? Yeah, I think you were going to tell us about uh, Coin no? Yeah, so we, we spoke about this last week, so this is ongoing. So, Coin is now dead. Uh, if you go to if you go to, to the website, which is, um, what is it, Coinye dot... Coinye coin. So Coinye coin dot I-N. Co dot I-N, yeah. Right. Very sad news. 
Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that uh, sometimes you you uh, fight the law and the law wins. <laughs> so last week when we spoke about Konye, the Konye coin, we said that what happened is that we they 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 got a cease and desist letter from uh, Kanye West's lawyers. That cease and desist letter apparently worked because they the dev team stopped the website earlier this week. So they put on the website, Konye is dead, you win Kanye. If you go to the website now, it says Konye is dead and they're still coming. So there's in fact now a lawsuit. So it appears that Kanye West's lawyers are taking further legal action against the creators. There's a 124-page lawsuit that accuses Zero Day Coins, CoinyExchange.com, New Exchange, and also some Jane Doe and John Doe's because we still don't know who the creators of this coin are. And they also um, cite Amazon because Amazon is hosting a site of uh, willful trademark infringement, unfair competition, dilution, and rights of publicity violation among a score of other uh, blatant statutory and common law violations. So what does this mean? So what's happening now is that the lawsuit was filed in Manhattan and now a federal court judge is trying to get, I guess, Amazon to um, hand over the identity of the creators, which they're refusing to do so. Apparently now what has been circulating, I think there was an article in Ars Technica where the journalist spoke with the alleged creators on IRC. Uh, apparently they're based in Europe. So uh, I'm not sure um, if Kanye West's lawyers are going to be able to go after them. And if they're in Europe, at least it'll be a lot more complicated. But the judge yeah. says that it's likely that... Um, their identity will be unmasked soon and that they're going to be able to force Amazon to uh, get, get, uh, give up their identities. It's pretty uh, absurd, the, oh, yeah. the kind of <laughs> stir he's making about this thing. Mm. Oh, definitely. I mean, I guess it just goes to show that this guy takes himself way too seriously. I, I, I don't know Kanye West very much. I, I don't listen to his music. and But the impression that I get from this character that is that, well, he doesn't have much of a sense of humor and he takes himself way too seriously yeah i think he can use some uh, improvement on that in that yeah. regard maybe he should attend a motivational speech or something like that <laughs> I, i'm also it's interesting to me that they're giving up in this way because it seems to me you know why couldn't they just push this thing to github and you know someone else launches it or you know they I don't know, they do it through Tor or something. It seems because uh, cryptocurrencies are a decentralized thing. Mm -hmm. It should be, it should be possible for this thing to be launched without there being anyone that they can really blame this on. Right. Well, it's from the, from the Ars Technica article that I read, it seemed like they wanted to push it forward. So they were trying to find ways that they could, um, they could revive the currency, and in fact, they're trying to. Well, they put it up for sale. So for 1.5 bitcoins, you can get, I guess, all the source code, and they basically hand over the project to you, so you can buy it for about twelve hundred dollars. Perhaps that would be a good estimate. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> since since there's a lawsuit and everything, uh, I don't know if there's any real interest in buying Coinye now. I mean, and also, I mean, all, all the people that had purchased Coinye coins on exchanges well, lost their money because the coin's dead. So 
Oh, was it already in an exchange? Oh, yeah. Well, all these exchanges are being also sued, right? So Zero Day Coins, Coin Exchange, and NEWCHG.com, which I think is also an exchange. But, but so is it still... Because if it was released, right, and people downloaded the client, they should still be able to mine it. And is that still happening? Can you still do Kanye transactions? I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that you could probably still mine it, but no, no exchanges are accepting it anymore. I mean, or, or trading it. All the exchanges stopped. <clears throat> sorry. All the exchanges stopped uh, trading since the lawsuit. I guess that's that's interesting. Again, you know, if you come back to kind of the nature of uh, cryptocurrencies and them being decentralized, is that this is a pressure point, no? Because that's somewhere where it's centralized, and that's somewhere where they can come in and say, "No, this violates some uh, trademarks and copyright." You know, stop this. And you know, they actually have to do it because they have an office and they can be uh, found and they can be sued. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, and what happens then? I mean, say this: say the currency goes on, right? Say we never find the creators, and the currency lives on, and it's traded on forms. I don't know. I mean, um, like there's no exchange, but people are still trading it or trading it through local bitcoins type services. Can can there be legal action against those people that are trading uh, this coin, right? Because it's decentralized. Yeah. I- he could probably try. I don't know if that would make any sense if there's a significant number of people, you know, because the cost of going after them would be just absurd. So, mm. but yeah, it will be, I'm sure we will see a lot more cases like that. I mean, on last week, you mentioned uh, this coin gen where you can create your own right. uh, cryptocurrency. And if you look at the names of the things that have been created, there are all kinds of, you know, Ron Paul coin and, and, and a lot of other coins that quite obviously use someone else's name or brand. And it would be interesting to see if there are more, you know, more companies that will try to go after these people. This is not the first time this has happened. I think I read somewhere also that Chuck Norris, there was a Norris coin and Chuck Norris also sent cease and desist letters to those the people who created it and that coin died as well yeah yeah i think i meant so that's so much too yeah. <clears throat> so then, like to me it, it <laughs> if, if you wanted to sue someone for creating a meme so i don't know maybe like say tomorrow uh, somebody posts a meme of kanye west like a, uh, and it be, you know, becomes viral and people start posting it all over the internet can kanye west then sue the people who created it because <laughs> it's completely centralized as well. I mean, it's just people using using his photo. I, I don't know. This is so absurd. To me. I'm, yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm also really curious, and I, I don't know anything about um, the legal side of this, but I'm really curious if he would actually have had a chance of winning this lawsuit. You know, and I guess another question from the size of the creators. You know, there are two things, really. One is, are you in the right? Would you win this lawsuit? And the other is, you know, even if you would win, or, you know, even if you were to win, do you want to go to all these lengths, like, you know, hire a lawyer, etc.? Because it might not make sense to do that, regardless of whether you uh, was legal what you did. 
so I, I think it might just be the threat, you know, of all this time wasted, this money wasted mm-hmm. that made them shut down. Yeah. Well, but it, it, it seems like this shouldn't be illegal. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. So this is what the lawsuit says. So, uh, although defendants could have chosen uh, any name for the cryptocurrency, they deliberately chose to trade upon the goodwill associated with Mr. West by adopting names that are admitted plays on his name. Mr. West has been inextricably tied to the defendant's cryptocurrency, as practically every online article and blog post about the Coinier West currency mentions Mr. West and or displays a photograph of Mr. West. So... This, this is what they're basing their lawsuit on. They're basing their lawsuit on the fact that people may uh, be fooled into thinking that Kanye West created this coin where I mean, obviously nobody thinks Kanye West created this coin, especially if after they changed the, uh, they changed the logo to uh, the half man, half fish hybrid wearing sunglasses. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, in the end, this was, it was kind of a joke in the first place. So yeah. it, it doesn't matter too much. Right. I think well, I, I maybe we should put this uh, topic to rest. <laughs> yeah, let's let's bury Coinier coins. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, maybe we'll talk about uh, Silk Road now. Yeah. So Silk Road was a big topic right before we started this podcast. So we've never talked about it, and it was a few months ago. Yeah, now Silk Road, for those people who don't know, Silk Road was kind of like an eBay where you could buy all kinds of things, but primarily uh, you could buy drugs there. Yeah, so this is know, where Bitcoin probably gets most of its notoriety with the general public. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right, right? So uh, Silk Road was, um, it was a hidden service on Tor. So Tor is, is this kind of a routing network that encrypts so you can use tor for two things one you can be anonymous and so you can surf the web anonymously because your traffic gets routed through different uh nodes and it gets encrypted so nobody knows who you are where you're coming from but the other thing is there are also websites that you can only access if you go through that network and they're hidden so nobody knows where their servers are so this is this is um great for websites that don't want to be shut down. And so obviously in kind of eBay for drugs would be shut down if they could find the server, but because it was a hidden service on Tor, nobody was able to find the server. So Silk Road was operating for two years and they had to have some way of accepting payments. And the only way to do this was uh, Bitcoin. So they've been accepting Bitcoin since the very start. And when they started in 2011, Bitcoin was very small and there was, you know, no merchant adoption. And so, but at the time, Silk Road was very important for Bitcoin. I think it was a lot of the demand uh, for Bitcoin came from Silk Road. A lot of the attention was because of Silk Road. Uh, I think there was an article on, in uh, The Verge or in, in some some uh, publication at the time that got a ton of attention about Silk Road and uh, that's, that caused the kind of first price spike. Uh, and so in last October, the FBI found the guy who started Silk Road. Uh, it's a guy named Ross Albrecht. Uh, they arrested him in San Francisco. And they also seized uh, two Bitcoin wallets. Or, well, they seized kind of two... 
two different Bitcoin, I'd say, sort of funds. So one was all the funds of the users of Silk Road. So if you use Silk Road and you wanted to buy drugs, or if you uh, were a seller there, you had a, you know, kind of a web wallet hosted by Silk Road. So you would have to transfer Bitcoins into that web wallet in order to make a purchase there. Or if you sold something, you would get the Bitcoins to your web wallet. So that was close to 30,000 Bitcoins that the FBI seized that way. And the other thing they seized was uh, Albrecht's personal funds. So he was operating so growth for two years and he made uh, a lot of money that way because he got a commission. I don't remember how much it was, but maybe like, yeah, I don't quite remember, but he, the wallet they seized from him has like 144,000 Bitcoins. And I read somewhere that people assume he might have another 300,000. So it, it's not clear how much he has in total, but he definitely has that much. Whoa. And they, they see that from him too. That's a lot of Bitcoins. A lot of Bitcoins. Yeah. <laughs> so there, uh, I mean the 29,000, you know, that's about $25 million now. Uh, his personal wallet with the profits he made through these two years is $120 million roughly. And he may have another 300 million or something. Of course, at the time, you know, his profits were a lot less in, in dollar terms. So most of that money he made through the appreciation of Bitcoin. Because, you know, if in 2011, if you made on a thousand dollar purchase, maybe that was, you know, 300 Bitcoins or something. Right, and right. he made, he made 10% of that. You know, that, that's like, maybe $30,000 now with one purchase, uh, one sale through his website. I'm interested, um, in, I'm interested in, I'm thinking about this, like, okay, so you know, the FBI arrested him. How did they seize these Bitcoin wallets? I mean, did, did you just have them laying around on a computer? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great question. So that I think there was a lot of confusion about that, whether they were actually able to access them, but I think they were because... I actually looked into that again before the show and they were transferred. So there was a bit Bitcoin transaction for, for these amounts. And, and so they transferred it to a, another wallet. So the FBI I think they, transferred it to another wallet is what you're saying. Yeah. So they were, but there's still this suspicion that maybe he has a lot more and we don't know if where they are and, uh, they might not have access to it because it's some encrypted somewhere or we, we just don't know. It's certainly possibly as more and the FBI would have no clue. Um, because we know the total turnover of the site, I think was something like, or the total revenues generated by the site was 650,000 bitcoins or something like that. And of course, you don't know how much his expenses were and how much of that is left, but probably most of it he didn't spend. Yeah. So, uh, the news now onto the news part. Uh, a judge basically signed off that the first part, so all the users' fund that were held by Silk Road can be sold now. So uh, they will be sold in the near future. And uh, I think the standard way to do this is through an auction. So if they may be auctioned off. I don't know how that would happen. It's interesting to think about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can show up somewhere in New York in some court or, uh, and then you can like bid on the Bitcoin. No, they'll do a Sotheby's auction. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 funny. It's interesting, you know. But this, is, also, this is how stuff that gets seized usually is sold, right? Through auction, they auction it off. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the same way. So I, I don't know if that's what they do here or if they'll have a more intelligent way of going about it. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, but it's and uh, of course it's uh, quite a substantial amount. I mean, if you would just dump thirty thousand bitcoins on exchanges, you know that would probably cause a very significant uh, price drop. And not not to talk about one hundred forty four thousand bitcoins that he has himself, but uh, there his lawyers basically have moved uh, to block the sale in in that they've said, you know. He said, these are my Bitcoins. So now they're going to have to wait until he's convicted. So okay. I'm sh that that may take, I don't know how long, but I guess a while. So could you just elaborate on what happens uh, if these Bitcoins get unloaded onto an exchange? Yeah, I mean, I think there will just be tons of sell orders and, you know, all the all the people who have buy orders, which are currently trying to buy Bitcoins, you know, they will buy some from uh, from th this pool and I guess the danger would be then that there would just be a lot more people uh, you know this would just overwhelm all the people who are trying to buy bitcoins and then uh, you know this might uh, cause the price to drop would an auction like say say they get auctioned off and so they're worth uh, 120 million now uh, let's say they get auctioned off and they're sold at 80 million how would that affect Bitcoin price. How may that affect Bitcoin price? I guess that depends on what the people would do who bought them. So if if they would buy them at an auction for eighty million in the hope that they you know just sell them on on the exchange for some profit, then you know it might have a similar effect. I mean, I, in general, if you want to buy a large amount of Bitcoin or you want to sell a large amount of Bitcoin, or if you look at these investment funds that are now moving into Bitcoin, I think they're trying to do those transactions off the exchanges. So they're never on the order books. They'll try to find some people who have large Bitcoin holdings and buy them directly. So that way they can, you know, may maybe take the current Bitcoin price on an exchange and do that transaction. And they don't have to go in there and make uh, try to buy them at the exchange price because that wouldn't work if you try to come in and buy $20 million worth of Bitcoin at uh, you know the current Bitstamp price you would you know the price would increase uh, dramatically immediately so so the, the intelligent way for them to do this would be to you know to maybe talk to second market some of these Bitcoin investment funds so try to sell them that way I, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they have some kind of rules on how they have to go about selling assets they seize. I do, so I don't know if they're allowed to do that or if they will do that. But that would definitely be the way to, for them to get the best uh, price, I think. I think that uh, maybe we'll start seeing governments getting into selling Bitcoin more and more as they get seized in drug trafficking and illegal activity. Yeah, but I think that's that's one funny, interesting way of looking at it is that the U.S. government is getting into Bitcoin trading now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps we'll see them open their own exchange. You know that that might be a 
<laughs> yeah, they have a second market exchange for seizures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's move on to the next topic. So the next story is uh is about this new uh, Bitcoin ATM uh, which is coming out. Well, which I guess was released this week in in private beta. Uh, so it's called the Skyhook uh, open source ATM. So. It's a new competitor to the Lamasu and Robocoin uh, ATMs, which you know can cost upwards of twenty thousand dollars. So the difference with this ATM is that it costs under a thousand dollars, and it's open source. For now, I haven't seen any. But the the Robocoin costs twenty thousand. Right. Uh, Lamasu is five thousand. Right. So this kind of brings a new competitor onto the market, which is very affordable, and that you can in fact build yourself. So this new uh, ATM, like I said, is called Skyhook. It's built by a guy named John Hannes, who says he got the idea um, when he was trying to buy a Bitcoin ATM, and well, I thought that it was kind of expensive, and he got into uh, he started research, doing a bit of research, and. Well, discovered that it, it was easier than he thought to create one. So he posted a video on YouTube where he where he demonstrates how this works, and it's relatively easy. I mean, the video lasts a minute and a half, and he spends. So he says, "Okay, so here's how it works." He's got a Bitcoin uh, address uh, QR code. He f he flashes the QR code on the on, on the built-in camera. He uh, he then accepts, uh, confirms the address, and then he puts in U.S. dollars in the uh, bill feeder and accepts the purchase and that's it. Like it takes 30 20 seconds, 20, yeah. 20, 30 seconds. It's super yeah. quick. So the, the, not in the video, but in an article that I read, he points out that the machine is made from, I mean, the screen and the camera is a Nexus seven tablet. It's tethered to a uh, raspberry Pi, which is a small handheld, like portable computer. Like it's, it's about the size of a pack of cigarettes. So this is really interesting because it just goes to show that, well, people are doing creative things. Like I, I, I appreciate the kind of uh, do-it-yourself aspect of this story and uh, just goes to show how easy it is to you know, get these kind of things started. And also, I mean, it may introduce Bitcoin ATMs in places where we wouldn't expect to see them. So maybe, you know, uh, cafes or uh, corner stores will start doing Bitcoin trading. I mean, we're selling Bitcoin through these machines. Yeah, so I think I saw, I think he's going to sell it, right, for a thousand or like 999 or something. Right. And then he, but he's also open sourcing the software and, you know, how you build it. Right. And I saw on Coindesk, they looked into how much that will cost. And they said, like, you know, let's say you take a bit of a cheaper tablet and, uh, so he, on Coindesk, they estimated that you could build this thing for, 150 pounds, so then let's say $200. Really? <laughs> now, the, the I guess the question is security. So he points out um, that you need to you need to hook this up through Ethernet to prevent man-in-the-middle attacks. Uh, that there's some security also, like when if the machine gets turned off, you've got to enter a password. It can also be bolted to to a counter or something like that, so that you can't take off with it and all the money that's inside. So I guess there's a question of security that needs to be further uh, further looked into. Uh, but I mean, I think that this is a that there's a potential market for this this type of machine, uh, this low cost type of machine. That um, I mean, we, we could see you know, potentially uh, who who could be in the market for this. Uh, 
you know, corner stores, bakeries. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think the secure, if you look at it, it doesn't look secure. Well, but even if you look at the llama suit, I was like, can you just take this thing away? And, and I talked to the llama suit guys and, and they were pretty convincing that it's actually quite secure. I mean, okay, this is even much smaller than a llama suit, but you could put this in a cafe or something like that. And you would, maybe you could do a transaction limit. So you'd say, you know, only up to a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin per transaction. Mm -hmm. And then if you empty it every day and, you know, it's in an intended area, this will be safe enough. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's, for example, here in France, a lot of stores, uh, small stores, corner stores, bakeries, uh, tobacco shops, they've started, they, they don't accept, like they don't take your cash anymore. Like you have to put your cash in this machine that processes your money. So it's kind of like this lockdown secured, uh, machine that makes sure that there's no, well, you know, nobody can just come in and, and rob the place. Like the machine's bolted to the counter. It's like this huge thing. So if we see this kind of, uh, installation where, the, the the skyhook atm is kind of like bolted in or built into a cabinet or built into the wall or something like that where you can't really just you can't take off with it and the access to cash is from behind the machine in some kind of back area i think that would be secure enough and like you said like if you limit transactions and the machine is emptied uh, frequently then it should be fine yeah one interesting aspect to talk about as well is is regulations because bitcoin atms as as far as the the machine goes and service goes, it's very simple. I mean, I think as this guy showed, you know, it's really easy to build and they're pretty cheap. I mean, even if you think of a llama suit of five thousand dollars, you know, that's that's not that much. You know, it's not that much money, especially you know if you do significant transactions and you charge three percent, two percent. I mean, I think the Robocon charges even more of a transaction fee. This money you've earned back in no time. But the issue is, how are you allowed to operate? How, you know, how can you operate those? So I, I looked into this in Germany and it looks like here that you're probably, because of the money laundering laws, you might have to identify people. And I think in the US, the situation is similar. So that's why we haven't seen one yet in the US. So of course you can't do that with this one. Right. It's worth mentioning that there's no, identity verification on this machine at all. I mean, you just go up to it, flash your QR code and, and put your cash in. Like, Yeah, but there's also no identity verification on the Llama suit. And on the Robocoin there is, but the question is, is that acceptable? For example, here, I don't think that would necessarily comply with the standard ways of doing identity verification. So... But of course, because these are so cheap and because maybe if you can build this yourself even... Perhaps we will just see them popping up all over the place. I mean, I don't know if it's happened, but it could it could happen. And then it would be very hard to uh, police that, you know, because there's a difference when you have to invest, let's say for Robocoin, uh, $20,000, maybe you buy several of them. You know, you start a company for that. There's kind of a, a point where the regulators can go and say no, and, you know, they can regulate you. But if it's, this becomes something... That's just kind of anyone can set up anywhere. It's much harder, of course, to regulate. How, how, how does this work? I mean, do you have to buy the Bitcoins? I mean, as, a, as somebody who operates a machine, do you have to buy the Bitcoins ahead of time and kind of have them on a wallet that's sitting on the machine? Or 
are they connected to exchanges? It seems to me like if they were connected to an exchange, the transaction would take a little bit longer because it would have to go over the internet. But if the bitcoins are stored on a wallet that's on the machine and they get transferred immediately. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the way to do it, you're right that it's not that predictable how quick you get the transaction when you make a payout out of the exchange. So you might have to, I mean, I've seen that you might have to wait 15 minutes on or half an hour until it's actually go through. So I think the way to do this is that you would have a wallet um, that holds some amount of Bitcoin, maybe enough for an hour's worth of ATM transactions. So if someone comes, puts in a hundred euros, you would get, uh, you would send the Bitcoins from that wallet. And then you'd also be holding some money on an exchange, you know, maybe a few thousand euros. And then you would buy in real time, you would buy um, the amount of Bitcoin you're selling to this person. So you wouldn't have an exchange uh, risk or your exchange risk would be limited to the size of this kind of, you know, buffer wallet. Um, so, you know, you'd have a limited exchange risk. You can basically do real time trading for this through, you know, the APIs of exchanges. So, you know, the, the risk is, is not that big. You would, however, need to have substantial capital, although uh, that depends on how much transactions you would do, that you hold in the exchange already to buy more Bitcoins, right? Because it will take you a while to take the cash you earn and, you know, kind of get it back to the exchange. Mm -hmm. So the, in, in order to operate these machines, you, you do have to purchase some Bitcoin capital ahead of time. So the investment isn't limited to the machine, the cost of buying the machine. You also have to buy the Bitcoin that you're going to be selling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So l let's just say you do 5,000 euros a day of uh, transactions. Then you might have to also buy a thousand euros worth of Bitcoin beforehand. And you might have to put in, let's say, 10,000 euros into the exchange account, assuming it takes you, you know, two days to get the cash uh, from the machine and, and get it back into the exchange account. So you'd have capital costs of, you know, let's say maybe 20,000 uh, for operating a machine like that. But that depends, right? So if the more transactions you do, the more you're going to, the more cap working capital you need. And the faster, of course, also the faster you get the money in there, uh, the less you need. So I think actually in Europe, it's pretty fast because you have this like separate transfers. So you might have next day kind of pay-ins. But, you know, if, if there's, if you're in a place where it takes longer, then it would make it much more expensive to operate these machines. And of course, if you're in a place where there's no local Bitcoin market, no liquid Bitcoin market. So let's say you want to put one of those up in Argentina. Well, that makes it much, much more complicated because then you have to think like, how do you buy, we buy these Bitcoins? So, um, that also limits where you can operate those because unless you have a bank account and you have access to a Bitcoin exchange, especially one where you can do trading through an API, uh, you can't really operate these things. Not efficiently, at least. I'm looking forward to seeing the first Bitcoin ATM here in my city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I can't wait to see the first one here. So you said that you were you said you were working on. I mean, you had looked into putting one up in Berlin. Yeah, I've been looking into this, and I'm 
I'm still a bit unsure. So uh, the, the real, uh, the, there's two things really you have to do. You would be providing financial service. So you have to basically get a license for that, which doesn't make any sense because it's very expensive and very complicated and long. But you can try to work with a bank or something like that to for the license. So that's one side. The other side is the money laundering question. So you might have to, at least I looked at it with a lawyer and it looks as if you would have to identify the people, mm. uh, which of course makes it much more of a hassle because then you can't just put up an ATM and people can use it, but you would have to have people, you know, basically make an account with you. You have to verify who they are and then you kind of set their privilege or, you know, give them the right to use the ATM. So that makes it less attractive, of course, because you can't just walk up there and use it, but you might have to spend, you know, log into a website and it takes you several days until you actually be able to use the ATM. I know there are some in operation. What's that? There are some in op. There are some in operation now, right? And we, we talked about this, I think, yeah. last week or the week before, in uh, in Finland and in Sweden. I know in Sweden they require people to, you know, s- sign up, and I think maybe they have someone there to, who does it. So they basically do what I think you might have to do. And I think in Finland, if I'm correct, they just went ahead. So uh, I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's going to work out because of course you can just start operating them and then see what happens, you know, see how long it takes until, I don't know, the regulators come or the police comes and, <laughs> yeah. but, but that might be kind of risky. Okay. I mean, we should move on to, uh, not our last topic. This is, uh, before last topic, uh, which, uh, which really relates to uh, where I live. So, uh, France, uh, the French Senate, held a hearing into Bitcoin and other digital currencies this Wednesday, so on the 15th. Unfortunately, this went completely unnoticed by the media. Since François Hollande, the, the president of France, was holding a press conference that afternoon, and there's been uh, allegations that he's had an affair with a French actress, and so everybody was basically focused on that. Uh, in fact, like the two two of the larger newspapers here, Le Monde and Le Figaro, had zero coverage on the French Senate hearings over Bitcoin. Well, well of, co- of course, if the president's having an affair, then, you know, nothing yeah. else <laughs> no, really nobody, matters. Nobody cares about Bitcoin if the president's having an affair. So these these hearings were were chaired by uh, Philippe Marini. So this is a bit, a bit of context. So uh, Philippe Marini, um, who is a U- UMP senator. So UMP is a center right party. There, there's two major parties in France. I mean, there's m- many parties, but the two larger parties are uh, the UMP, which is the uh, center right, and then there's the the uh, the Socialist Party, which is the current party in power, and they're the center left. And the UMP is the party of the former president Nicolas Sarkozy. So it was a rather large hearing, which featured a large number of representatives from the central bank, the treasury department, the ministry of finances, uh, anti-money laundering arm, the, um, uh, the French intelligent, like a French intelligent agency, which is tasked to carry out investigations on smuggling, counterfeit money and such. 
and Thing, which is an organization which tries to simulate digital innovation. So the hearings also included representatives from the industry, notably uh, Gonzague Granval, who's the co-founder of Paymium, which is which operates uh, Bitcoin Central. It's a Bitcoin exchange here in Europe. And so you've got you've got to. I mean, we have to remember that this is in a context where, in December, the French central bank issued a, a publication which was very negative towards Bitcoin. If you listen to our pilot episode, we spoke about this, where basically they were issuing um, very severe warnings uh, against uh, the use of Bitcoin. But this hearing was actually quite positive. There didn't seem to be any prior bias or negative bias towards Bitcoin. Uh, the committee speakers dismissed any concerns that Bitcoin would be made illegal in France and feel that there's a, a real potential for innovative innovation behind it. That said, it's unclear how the Senate committee will will regulate it or what's to do next. So, you know, they basically said, okay, we're, we're not thinking of making this illegal, but we still don't know how we're going to regulate it or what's going to happen next. There was a bit of a lack of understanding uh, on the part of the Senate committee members of the concept of decentralized distributed systems. So at one point, like one of the Senate committee members apparently asked a question about who owns Bitcoin. And when somebody answered no one, the, they, <laughs> they were kind of baffled and really didn't know how to, what to make of that. The uh, CEO of uh, Paymium, uh, Gonzague Granval, uh, obviously boasted Bitcoin, pointing out that Bitcoin... Uh, Entrepreneurs uh, can stimulate innovation in France, which is uh, a hot topic right now. Everybody's kind of trying to stimulate the economy and, and digital innovation is definitely part, plays a part in that. And he stated that Bitcoin entrepreneurs need government backing and so that it would help greatly help with that ecosystem if the government would uh, support them. He also pointed out that other European companies, such as Germany, were ahead of France on the issue of Bitcoin, and that if uh, France wants to keep their competitive advantage, they need to get things moving. And you know, everybody knows that France doesn't want to be behind Germany. So uh, I think this it, resonated. That seems with like them. a good selling point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want to be behind Germany, so you better get your get your ass moving. And uh, so, so then some of the other players uh, spoke and the head of mon money laundering said that they've been tracking Bitcoin since 2011 and they had systems in place to uh, intercept criminals and things like that. So they seem to be up on the up and up. Of That's, that is interesting. Yeah. 2011 seems... That's uh, quite surprising. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that's what they said. Maybe they're, maybe they're uh, yeah, just... Um, maybe they like read about it once and then they like had a, a news alert or something like that. Right. That was the extent. <laughs> so they, this they, sounds they really similar ready to, to the... the bad guys, basically. Was that? Yeah, yeah. This sounds really similar to the US Senate hearings that we had in, when was it, November or October or something? Um, yeah, I didn't really follow the US, the US Senate hearings that much. I, I had heard that the, the outcome had been positive, but um, didn't really go into detail about what was said. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a, a concrete outcome. It was more that there was a surprisingly positive tone and the senators, you know, they asked, they seemed to actually be interested in it and open to it and see that Bitcoin is not just a negative thing. Cause I think the tone and the public discourse has changed quite a lot since then. But at the time, Bitcoin was still mostly very negatively covered. I think this was just after the Silk Road bust too. Mm -hmm. So it was surprising that there seemed to be a, 
a fairly open, open-minded point of view. And, and it sounds, it sounds from what you're saying that uh, there's a similar situation in France, a similar thing happening there. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like it was a positive exchange. I mean, obviously now what needs to happen is, you know, uh, legislators are going to go back and look into this further and propose some laws probably uh, that would be adopted whenever they're whenever they're proposed. So I think in, two, in 2014, we're going to see some laws come into play in terms of, uh, well, regulation as to uh, identification, who can buy and sell Bitcoin, uh, whether or not they're considered to be a currency or commodity, all this, this kind of stuff that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Yeah, or, or what might be more likely is that they're going to, for at least for the time being, is just that they would put it in some existing category. So they'll say like, okay, you have to treat it like a foreign currency or something like that. Right. Now, the, the other question is, how, do this, how does this play out in the, from, from a European perspective? So does Europe have the authority or is it up to Europe to pass laws which regulate Bitcoin or is it up to the countries? Since we're in the Eurozone and currency regulation mostly largely gets decided on a, on a continental level, um, does Bitcoin fall into the same category where they would be regulated globally? I mean, not globally, but at, at a European level. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I actually asked uh, my lawyer about this. And uh, in his view, there are kind of two sides to this. On the one hand, there is the financial regulations and banking regulations, etc. And that is quite uh, sort of a European thing. So if you have a, you know, if you're licensed to do a financial, operate a financial business or you have a financial service license in one country, it generally is kind of valid in other countries too, although you might have to register in that country. But then there's also the money laundering thing. And I think the money laundering thing is something that's very much country specific. So I think there will be some things that will probably be European wide. And then when it comes to, let's say rules according to what you need to do to operate an ATM, that might be something that falls under uh, each country's uh, kind of jurisdiction. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, it will be interesting to see what comes out of this. And um, it seems like there's reason to be hopeful. Mm. I think there is reason to be hopeful. Um, I think that the, Bitcoin community and entrepreneurs that are working with Bitcoin are going to play a major role in how things get decided over the next few months, not just here in France, but everywhere. Uh, it's, it's definitely a good thing that, um, people from the industry are being included in these Senate hearings, which I think is usually the case, but that they could basically, uh, vouch for Bitcoin and, and I guess in a way kind of sell it to the regulators as a good thing that can stimulate economy, that can uh, stimulate entrepreneurship. Now, I mean, there, there isn't very much Bitcoin entrepreneurship happening in France as opposed to, say, in the U.S. or in other European countries, I think. Uh, at least I haven't seen much, but it's definitely something that um, I think we'll need to be, well, we'll be um, developing over the next few months. I think we're going to see a lot of startups, at least here in France, pop up. All, all around the place. Let's hope so. All right, so maybe we'll uh, go to our last topic. Yeah, so the the last topic we want to cover today, and I think this is a, a topic when we will come back to in the future, 
is about a new currency or a new protocol called Ethereum. Right? At least I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Right. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, actually, I, I looked up where this comes from. And of course, there's the adjective ethereal, which means uh, kind of intangible mm-hmm. and also delicate, refined. But Ethereum is also a weapon in World of Warcraft. Yeah, that, that's what I found when I looked it up. I was trying to find the website. And- <laughs> yeah, so I'm not a gamer, so I, w- I wasn't familiar with that, but it's, it's this kind of like double-edged axe. Okay. To me, it sounds yeah. like a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ethereum. In a world where Bitcoin has <laughs> taken over the economy, this man fights to protect the blockchain. <laughs> yes, exactly. Very dramatic. Yeah. And then the, the currency, so Ethereum is the name of the a protocol, I guess. And the currency, because uh, it also contains a currency, is called Ether, which, of course, is a chemical element. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Ethereum is, you know, it's an altcoin, but it's not, I would say, an ordinary altcoin, but it has uh, the ambition to provide as kind of fundamental protocol layer. And there are some other projects in this area. And I, I look at it as a, as competition to those other projects. So the other projects are Mastercoin. Then there's the ProtoShares, uh, BitShares project by, uh, that's led by Invictus Innovation. And Colored Coins is also a project that's comparable, although it's a bit different because it doesn't have its own currency. Um, but yeah, so this is very interesting. It's gotten uh, quite a bit of attention and I think it will get a ton of attention in the next um, two months and, and in the future. So a bit about the project, it, uh, it's led by a guy named Vitalik Buterin. Now, if you've been reading my newsletter, I have, I always include some blog posts and almost every single week since I've been read, writing this newsletter, uh, I've been including a blog post by him because he's one of the writers for Bitcoin magazine and he's just a phenomenal. Yeah, I I looked at, I was looking him up and and I realized after that I had read a bunch of his articles because I always see him on the bottom of the, on on the footer of the Bitcoin magazine articles. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So he's he's really great writer. He takes uh, very technical complex topics and he writes about them in a you know, in a in a great uh, accessible way. Yeah, and he's, and he's 19, also right? Yeah, he's 19. <laughs> it's in- incredible. Uh, yeah, it's kind of makes you feel... Uh, <laughs> what have you been doing? <laughs> yeah, what was I doing when I was 19? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's a very smart guy. He's also been involved in a number of different projects. He's been involved in Colored Coins. He was doing some work there. Yeah, there's also... I think it's called CryptoKid. Yeah, he worked on CryptoKid. Yeah, we yeah, briefly covered it. It's like a browser extension wallet. Pretty cool. And of course, Bitcoin Magazine, he's doing a lot of writing there. He's, a co- he's, he's the co-founder of Bitcoin Magazine, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. So he's the lead developer here. And uh, there's some other people, well-known people that have joined uh, the project. So what's this Ethereum for? The basic idea is that Ethereum is like a, a platform where you can run applications on it. You can build kind of complex things on top of it. So 
I want to come back to this in the future to kind of dive more in detail into how this can look and what exact how this will work. But I, I want to mention a few things that could build on top of that. So one thing, for example, is that you could do pegged currencies. So that would be currencies who would have their value uh, tied to the US dollar, for example. So they would have some mechanism by which they would they would get it like a data stream inside that would say, okay, the US dollar is at, at you know at this rate, and then they would, for example, issue more currency if or or decrease the money supply just to keep basically exchange rate stable. Yeah, and there, there's so much more you could do. You could do uh, basically replicate uh, derivatives let's say options, bonds, shares, all those things you could, uh, financial instruments you could replicate. Um, one concept that's gotten uh, a lot of attention that you could do with this is the idea of having kind of autonomous agents operating in this. So what does this mean? This means you would basically write a contract or write some kind of code that represents um, this autonomous agent, then this code would live in the blockchain and it would be executed and it could make its own transactions, do its own things, and it, it would not be controlled by anyone. So if you, if we think into the future kind of science fiction style, if you think about artificial intelligence actually being able to control, do things, interact with the world, you know, this is the basis for that because here autonomous agents are starting to be able to do economic transactions. So of course we're very far from there, but at least the basis is there. I think actually the difficulties will be more into getting accurate data to those agents and things, but at least from an economic perspective, these things will be able to do transactions themselves and things like that. So it's, it's quite crazy. This stuff to me is is so uh, abstract. I mean, for me anyway, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to comprehend what these um, platforms really mean and what they, what we're going to be able to do with them. And I think until we actually start seeing, like for me anyway, I, like I need somebody to show me, like, okay, this is what we're, this is how it works, you know. And I, I was listening to, I was watching this talk. Uh, it's a really good talk on uh, on YouTube. It's the at the Bitcoin 2012 London conference. It's it's a talk by Mike Hearn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, who, I, who's one of the lead developers on the Bitcoin project. So if you look it up, it's Bitcoin 2012 London, Mike Hearn. It's about 30 minutes long and he explains quite, I mean, he explains it quite well, but still after after watching this talk, I, I still have a lot of questions, but he explains, you know, all of the things that we can do with Bitcoin now, uh, the things that are already built into Bitcoin where we don't even need these other platforms, like it's, it's built into the protocol. And he talks about all this stuff about about these um, autonomous agents and uh, proto share kind of stuff, and it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's I, I completely agree with you, and I feel the same way. I mean, I've been reading about this Ethereum now for a bit, and I've been reading a lot that was written on it, that from the white paper to a forum post, etc. I've also been reading about MasterCoin for a while and, and other projects like that. And I'm still having a, a great difficulties in truly understanding what's going on here. But I think it's, it's certainly important. Let me say a few more things about how this works. Yeah. 
So the currency here, Ether, is actually going to be used to pay uh, for computational steps. So because if you do a contract and then you include some code with that, what that means is this code would be executed by the miners. It's kind of um, kind of crazy to think about it, but it's like it would be like a distributed computing platform. So you would uh, write some contract, some code. Uh, you would send this, and you would send money with this, and the money would be paid to run the program. And kind of once the money's been used up, it, it stops running. So this ether would be used for kind of each computational step. So really, if you, for example, uh, participate in this fundraiser and buy ether, you're really speculating that the demand for this computational platform will be high. And, you know, this will cause a high demand for ether because a lot of computational steps will be executed there. There's also, uh, uh, a property of this, which people are very excited about, and I also don't really understand it. It's called it. It's Turing complete. So Turing from Alan Turing, you know, the famous uh, British uh, computer scientist, cryptographer, etc. So the basic idea is that you will. It has its own programming language, this Ethereum, and you will be able to emulate any calculation any computer can do with this language. So it's extremely uh, versatile. At least that's the ambition because they've actually not done it so far, right? So it's a, it's a white paper at this point. Right. But they, they say that's one advantage over the ProtoShares project, for example. And so they, they've, in the white paper, uh, Vitalik, you know, he writes, uh, he thinks this is going to be a significant to, you know, cryptocurrencies as like web 2.0 was to the World Wide web, you know, to have this kind of analogy. I also read that. Yeah. But still, like, <laughs> I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I started reading, the, I started reading the, the white paper and, and then, you know, you, you start reading it and then you click on this link that takes you to a wiki because you want to learn about this other thing. And then, and then it says, you know, if you're reading this, that you know, we assume that you're well-versed in this thing. So I click on this other link and it's a, yeah, there's just so much, yeah. so much to learn. Yeah, no, totally. So um, there's a few more things about that that I, I guess we shouldn't go into too much. Like there's a different proof of work. The idea is it will be CPU friendly, although there's been criticism of that. So you'd be able to mine it on your own computer. There wouldn't be ASICs, but uh, unclear if that's going to work out. Uh, but one thing I think we should briefly cover uh, which is the way they're going about this fundraiser, which is is interesting and also very controversial. So uh, MasterCoin, for example, uh, let me briefly explain that so you can kind of see where this Ethereum is coming from. What MasterCoin did was they also did a fundraiser, which was in last August. So for one month, they said, you can send money to this address and for each... A Bitcoin you sent to this specific address. It was a, it was called the Exodus address, and uh, it had actually the word Exodus in the Bitcoin address. Uh, so for each Bitcoin you sent there, you got I think a hundred Mastercoin. It was. And now in this Ethereum, they're doing a similar thing. There's a fundraising period which starts on uh, January twenty fourth, and it it's supposed to last for sixty days, but I think this is not confirmed yet. 
And during that period, you can send, there will also be an address. You can send any amount of Bitcoin you want to that address. And for the Bitcoins you send there, you will receive 10,000 Ether, so of, of their currency. Or really, you have to you look at it like this. For every Bitcoin you send to this address, 15,000 of this currency will be issued. 10,000 will go to the person who sends the Bitcoin there. 2,500 will go to the founders of the project, so Vitalik and the people he works with. And 2,500 will go into a foundation that will fund the development. So this is where it was controversial, where the founders were getting some of that. Yeah, this is where it's controversial because, I mean, I think this is going to be a big success. If you look at MasterCoin, the currency increased dramatically after the fundraising. So if you put in, I think, $1,000 at the time, it would be worth $100,000 now. So, you know, even rel- even compared to the Bitcoin price, uh, the MasterCoin price went just up like crazy. And a lot of people think this is even more interesting. The MasterCoin has more potential. So I can imagine this would be, or I think this would be a, a big success for the fundraiser. You know, they will raise a lot of money. And so the founders will make uh, a lot of money before they've done anything. You know, this is a white paper, really. I mean, they've done something, but... The, you know, the client isn't developed, the, you know, the thing, the project is still really in a a conception phase. So they will stand to make a ton of money. And of course, they'll also be uh, running the foundation. So they will, through owning, through the things they award themselves and through controlling the foundation, they will be in control of a third of the currency. And then maybe they also buy some. So they might have, uh, you know, they will have more than that even. So that's very controversial. A lot of people said, man, this is a bit questionable, you know, if they want to do a protocol, this kind of fundamental protocol, and they're also becoming, you know, rich in the process. Right. Uh, Are you going to be buying any of this either? I'm thinking about it, but yeah. I'm still, uh, I'm still not at, uh, <laughs> I st- my, I, I, there will be time, right? So we don't ha- you don't have to decide now because yeah. the fundraiser is going to last for two months and, but I'm, I'm certainly thinking about it. Uh, their argument, maybe I should briefly mention, is they compare this to kind of like a startup. So, you know, they say if you found a startup, of course, the founders own the sh- some shares and then over yeah. time they get diluted. So this currency is also, it it is mined. So the, the supply increases over time and it increases at the, at the same amount each year. So... Of course, the inflation rate is going down because, you know, relative to the total money supply, the increase gets smaller, but it's, it's, um, less so than Bitcoin, right? The, the decrease is uh, less than Bitcoin and it will always decrease, uh, increase. Um, so they say, you know, their share gets smaller over time. It gets like diluted because of the increase of money supply. Of course, it's also true if you invest in it. So that's their argument. And they say, like, you know, how much does Bill Gates own of Microsoft? So that's one of the things they said. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a very valid comparison. Now, th- just so, so I get this straight, this is built on top of Bitcoin or is this another No, this is, com- this is completely different. This is a new altcoin. So this has a, it has its own blockchain. It has... Yeah, it has its own blockchain. Okay. MasterCoin... 
Uh, it's built on top of Bitcoin. On top of Bitcoin. Right. Yeah, yeah, but this is different. This is a new, completely new currency. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting uh, topic. It's, so it's, it's just, you know, so it's a new currency, new protocol, basically with other with some new added features that Bitcoin doesn't include in its protocol. Well, I would I would go further than that. You know, this isn't even aiming to be really a transactional currency. This is aiming right. to be a kind of a computational platform to do all these complicated uh, contracts things that Bitcoin kind of can do, you know, there are, there is the scripting language with which you can do some of these things, but, but their argument is, this is not nearly powerful enough. We need to have something specific just for those things. And, and this is it. So uh, people, you know, people have talked about this as being like Bitcoin 2.0. So really quite fundamentally different. Also, if you think about uh, ether the currency is not really comparable to bitcoin i think you know bitcoin we see that now bitcoin is becoming a form of money a currency you can buy you know you can buy nba tickets soon with bitcoin you can buy uh, pay with bitcoin at the coffee shop uh, order your furniture with bitcoin etc you can uh, save bitcoin as a uh, you know hope being a will appreciate in the future etc uh, but this is quite different. I don't think you'll ever be able to pay with Ether any, in a real-world location. It's really this weird thing where you're purchasing your right to execute computations in this distributed network. So it's a, it's a, a quite a different thing. Of course, it's built on the same fundamental technology. It's right. still built on this peer-to-peer decentralized network with this blockchain. So... But I guess I'm wondering then if if it's not a transactional currency, then how does it keep its value? Like, oh, that's what, a what great determines question. the value. What determines the value? No, that's a great question, and I've I've really been thinking about this, and it's very difficult to understand because one thing, and okay, I've actually not seen, <laughs> I've not seen anything written on this too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna post it for him because I want to understand this properly, and it's not. I don't think people are thinking about this even when they're discussing Ethereum because there are two things here, right? On the one hand, there's the demand for this currency, which will be determined or there's the demand to execute computational steps, which will be determined by how much are people using this platform. Um, but there's also the cost of executing as each step. So they have some formula with which this, the cost is uh, changed. So that depends on the difficulty. So this gets very complicated because now the difficulty, the mining difficulty might be affected by the demand for these steps and that might affect the transaction fee. And so I don't know how all these things interact. It's, it's a very complicated, I think. So, but, uh, but the basic idea is over time, the transaction fee will decrease. So I don't know what that means for the value of uh, ether. Of course, you will need that uh, the demand for comp- computational steps will increase, you know, much faster than the money supply and than the decrease of the transaction fee. But as you can see, and as I've also I'm aware myself, this is is very complicated. It, it feels. <laughs> I feel like it's complicated. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to read up on this one a lot more. Like what, the, the, what, what I feel, what, my, my impression on this stuff is that it, it's, it is very complicated. There's lots happening in this space. I think that it's going to change a lot of, I mean, it has a potential to change a lot of aspects of society. I mean, you know, just you know, contracts or how we start companies or how we finance companies. It's going to introduce a whole bunch of new ways that we do things. So whoever, you know, the people that understand this stuff are going to be very well placed, I guess. I mean, they're going to have an advantage over those who don't. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's not- a, it certainly sounds and it's a belief, I think, of, uh, you know, these people and a lot of people working with these things is that this is absolutely revolutionary and oh, this yeah. is crucial and this will completely change how our economic system works, how our society works, how uh, companies work. Like I see, that I, when, I, when I think about this stuff, even with the lack of understanding that I have about it, like we're going to look back on this a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, and we're going to be like, you know, before we did the, we did things this way, things were centralized, things were run by you know, a very small number of people. And now things are decentralized and everything is cryptographic. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you will really have companies that are based on purely on code, which is right. weird, you know, and they're like autonomous companies, you know, if you think about it, they will be able to hire people and things like that. There's actually, let, let me mention a few more things. So I, I read, these like I, see, I feel like I see this in a movie somewhere you know, where everything no. is built on code, you know? No, absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, I read these, these science fiction book. There's a, a, a book series by a guy named William Hurtling. And uh, he, it's kind of a Google type company in there. And he writes, uh, they're called, the first one's called Avogadro Corp. So A-V-O-G-A-D-R-O Corp. And in there, the main character writes a program that I think is supposed to improve email. And uh, so basically artificial intelligence. And then also it starts being intelligent and uh, it starts making its own decision and it starts a highway, especially in the second book. There's a second book in the series where you have lots of different of these artificial intelligences and they start hiring their own data centers. They start hiring people to improve and maintain their data centers. And it's crazy. And here you actually see the very rough outlines of this, of how this could work. And it's, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, looking back on this, we're going to be looking back on it and saying, you know, and this was all created by this guy that nobody knows who he was. And his name was Satoshi Nakamoto. And it's, it's, it seems like a plot from a movie, you know, where this, this invisible character changed the world with this cryptographic, currency and and which then snowballed into all this other stuff that we're now seeing and we're just yeah. four years in you know like totally think about it in five years from now 10 years from now 50 years from now like where is this going to take us this is, it just blows yeah, my mind it's mind-blowing i agree uh, i'll mention one more thing so on if you want to read more about this stuff uh, the the talk you mentioned mike kern has some good talks there's another one uh, if you look at Turing Festival and Mike Hearn, that's H-E-R-N on YouTube. He also talks uh, about this in a very accessible way. And, you know, as, as I've mentioned, 
Vitalik Buterin, who's the lead developer here, he's also a very good writer. So if you go to blog.ethereum.org, he has a series which is called Bootstrapping a Decentralized Autonomous Corporation. So I, I've briefly read through this yesterday and um, it's uh, certainly not easy to understand, but he, as he always does, he does a great job at making these extremely complicated topics, you know, as accessible as one can, I guess. So, so it's, it's definitely interesting. The, the long articles, but I, I would recommend if you're interested in this topic, I would recommend you read that and maybe watch the, the, my current talks. And at least you will have uh, some idea of what's coming here. Yeah, no, I'm going to read up on this stuff a lot more over the next few weeks. And just by the way, it's Mike Hearn is H-E-A-R-N. Well, we're running on a, an hour and a half here, so we're going to have to wrap this up. Thanks uh, for listening to the podcast. Thank you for uh, for all of the, all those of you who uh, who subscribe and who download it weekly. Uh, we've been following the stats, and we're just amazed to see that you know, people are actually tuning in and listening. And, and um, we haven't gotten any feedback yet, so if if you have feedback for us if you have you know if you have ideas or, um, or questions or questions I mean, we or, could do questions and answers too i mean if, yeah. if there's things coming in absolutely yeah. so please send us an email uh our email is epicenterbitcoin at gmail.com you can also find us on on twitter epicenter btc or on facebook facebook.com slash epicenter bitcoin also subscribe to Brian's newsletter. It's at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. Do you want to talk about your newsletter a bit? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm right once a week, every Friday, I just go through the news and I discuss what's been going on and I try to kind of make sense of the most important developments. So I've been doing that for three months now and it's, it's very helpful for me to just you know, take some time to really understand where Bitcoin's going. And I think it's helpful to the people, the subscribers too. So if you're interested in Bitcoin and you just want to have like once a week uh, an overview of what's been happening, um, that's a good place to go. We often cover some of the same topics on the show that I, you know, I kind of discuss in the newsletter. So it's it's also kind of getting uh, uh, two sides to the same stories. Let's put it like that. So yeah, uh, yeah if you want to subscribe, then just uh, I would love to have you, of course, on the newsletter. And also, uh, if you want, if you like the work we're doing, and if you want to tip the show, you can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com/tips. And uh, so that's it. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll uh, be back next week on Sunday with uh, all the all the week's Bitcoin news. Indeed. Thanks for listening and uh, look forward to next time.